Would you turn, please, to 2 Timothy 4. 2 Timothy 4. We've come to the last uh, chapter of the book of 2 Timothy, and we've come to the last chapter of the Apostle Paul's life. As he puts it uh, in chapter 4, I have fought a good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me at that day. Nero uh, rewarded the apostle for 25 to 30 years of faithful ministry by beheading him. But the Lord, who is the righteous judge, gave him the crown of eternal life. Now, at the uh, end of the book, he, uh, he issues uh, some warnings to Timothy. He asks him to, to greet some people for him, and he brings Timothy up to date concerning some of his friends. That's why I call this section Paul and His Friends, although there is one enemy uh, in this number, Alexander, whom he describes for us. But mostly these are Paul's friends and associates. Whenever I come to a passage like this, uh, at first reading, I always wonder what's here and uh, what can be profitable for instruction. But there's a great deal here, particularly when we realize that these are real people. These are people who were the products, by and large, of the Apostle Paul's ministry. He says to Timothy, uh, in verse 9, Make every effort to come to me soon. This is his request to Timothy, because Demas... Having loved this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, probably Gaul, Central Europe. Titus to Dalmatia, which would be modern-day Yugoslavia. Only Luke is with me. So the apostle was virtually alone. That's why he makes this uh, request. Demas, he says, having loved this present world has deserted me. We don't know why Crescens left. We don't know why Titus left. Some feel that they too had deserted, and the grammar from this passage may indicate that, but because we don't know, it's best not to say. But in any case, Demas uh, had left him in the lurch, is the meaning of, of the term, because he loves this present world. Now, I think this is a deliberate contrast with those who love his appearing in verse 8. Some long for heaven and home. They uh, put their faith in, in eternal uh, truths, eternal things. They long for Jesus and, and love him. Others love this world. They love the things of this world. Someone has said uh, there are two kinds of people in the world, those who divide the world into two kinds of people and those that don't. Uh, the Apostle Paul is one who divided the world into two kinds of people, I believe. There are those who love this world, and there are those who love Jesus and his appearing. And I guess the question we have to ask ourselves, all of us, is what do we love? Where do we set our affections? What are our hearts inclined toward? Do we love the Lord? Do we long for him? Do we long for heaven and home? Or do we long for the things of this world? The, the mark of someone who stays loyal to the apostles and loyal to his word is that they love the Lord Jesus. That affection in and of itself solves a whole lot of problems. I, uh, I very often uh, have men ask me about their own careers and 
accumulation of, of wealth. And uh, the question is often, how much is too much? Uh, how big is too big? What kind of vehicle should we drive? What, uh, what sort of houses should we build? How much money should we accumulate? And uh, I always answer uh, in exactly the same way. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I, I can't answer that question for you but th- because that's not a question that, that Scripture answers in any definitive way. The issue is always what our hearts are focused upon. What do we love? What, what is most important to us? I just spent a weekend in Dallas, Texas. Uh, I was asked to come back for a leadership conference for a church uh, pastored by a good friend of mine, Bill Counts, and I spent the weekend in Dallas, went a little early to to spend some time with Bill and then stayed a little late to spend some time with my father, who's still living in in Dallas. He'll be 90 years old here in a few months, and uh, it was a delight to spend some time with him. But as always, when I go to Dallas, I was... uh, really impressed by the conspicuous materialism uh, of Dallas. Now, uh, all of us are materialists at heart. Most of us are closet materialists. Uh, Or, as I told the men last Wednesday, we're garage materialists. Most of our toys, our expensive toys, we keep in the garage. And all of us struggle with uh, the acquisition of these uh, these toys and trinkets and possessions and things. But, but it really struck me uh, in Dallas how blatant their materialism is. Uh, everywhere I looked, I saw Cadillacs and Mercedes-Benz and BMWs and Calvin Klein uh, designer jeans and Gucci loafers. And, and after a while, it really got to me. Not that I felt uh, at all self-righteous, because I have to judge my own penchant uh, toward uh, materialism. But uh, uh, it, it was just there, everywhere. And when I went to the conference, I saw the same sort of thing. Uh, the cars that they drove, the clothes that they... These were conferees at a, a lovely resort in Tyler, but yet they were, they were dressed uh, as they were going to downtown Dallas. It was sort of overwhelming. But I discovered that they have the same sort of problem that we have. The questions that came to me over and over again by businessmen and, and women in that group was the question I get here, how much is too much? Well, what do you do if you're working in a law firm where everyone wears $400 suits and you're working with clients who wear four and $500 suits? How do you dress in an environment like that? What kind of car do you drive? And again, the question came, how much is too much? How big is too big? And I had to say in every, in every instance, I don't know. I can't tell you. I can't tell you how much is too much. All I can say is that we have to love the right things. That's always the key. And if you love the right thing or the right person, you'll know how to answer that question. The passage that always comes to my mind is Matthew 6. And it would be good, I think, to take a moment to look at that passage because it's a good parallel to Paul's statement. His, his comment about Demas loving this world in contrast to those who love the Lord. Jesus is writing about uh, possessions and the accumulation of them. He says in verse 19, don't lay up for yourselves. I'm reading Matthew 6, 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. He's talking about the comparative durability of commodities here on earth. We may use rust-proof paint. We may put mothballs in our things and burglar-proof our houses, but they still rust and decay and 
and they're taken away from us or they begin to possess us. After a while, I have had a, a good friend who just sold his horse because he said he's decided never to invest in anything that eats while you sleep. <laughs> but uh, Jesus says some things are, are, more, are more durable, they're more lasting than others. Don't, don't lay up treasure in those things. Now, he's, he's not talking about uh, mere acquisition of things. He's not talking about being provident and saving for the future. He's rather talking about selfish acquisition, selfish accumulation. What, what Martin Luther calls Sir Greed, materialism just for the sake of, of materialism. He says, don't, don't, don't put your heart into things. Don't lay up treasure in things that are going to decline and degrade and, and decay. Rather, he says, lay up treasures for yourself in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. The, the only commodities that last, the only things that are going to heaven are people. So put your life into people. That's what, it, what he's saying. The acquisition of character, God-like character, the, uh, a love and longing for Jesus on your part, and uh, uh, ministry to others that produces like-mindedness in them. That's what matters, he says. Spend your time and your effort uh, along those lines, not in the mere acquisition of things that, uh, that will be taken away from you. Because, as he says in verse 21, this is the explanation for the command, because where your treasure is, it's where your heart is. Uh, by heart, he, he's talking about the reasoning uh, faculties as well as our, the emotional part of us. The ancients thought of the heart as the seat of, of thought. Jesus' point is that our mind tends to be fixed on things that we treasure. We tend, we, we, we tend to become preoccupied with things that we treasure. It's always a good question to ask ourselves. What is it that our minds go to when they shift into neutral? When you're not thinking about something else, where does your mind go? What do you fix on? You know, your diet, your exercise program, uh, your, your vehicles, uh, a new fly pattern, uh, some way of fixing up your house, your aerobics program. You know, wh- where, where does your mind go when you're not thinking about anything else? That's a good test because, uh, as John White says, it's not our occupation that is a problem. It's our preoccupation. What are we preoccupied with? And the Lord wanted people to be preoccupied with things that really matter, with things that, that last. Now he goes on to answer the question that, that we raised a moment ago. How much is too much? Jesus says, the lamp of the body is the eye. If your eye is clear or single is the word that he's using. If you're focused on one thing, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? So the question is not how much, but uh, who? Who are you focused on? If you long for the Lord Jesus, if you love him with all of your heart, if you're seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness, your whole body will be full of light. You'll never be confused about what to do with your money, where to send it, how much to spend on others, how much to spend on yourself. All of that confusion is cleared up if you love the Lord. That's what he's saying. That's the answer to the, to the, the question of how much is, is too much. But if the eye is evil, if you have one eye on the Lord Jesus and one eye on something else, how great is that darkness? You'll always be confused. And as a matter of fact, the darkness that Jesus is describing is moral darkness. 
Unless we set our affection on things above, we're likely to cut ethical corners. We're likely to to eschew our values. You know, we, we just we don't we don't know what to value. We don't know what's worthwhile. We get all confused about our use of our money and our and our homes and our clothing. Those things become a huge problem to us. But if the eye is single, they're not a problem. You'll know. I can't tell you how you'll know, but you'll know the whole body will be full of light. He goes on to say, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll hold to the one and despise or take lightly the other. He cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon is the Aramaic word for money. It's also uh, the name of a God. And I think what, what Jesus is saying is that if you're a materialist, you've opted for idolatry. You've made money your God. And that's the problem with materialism. It's not that you take money away from the poor. That's often the, you know, if you read books by Ron Sider and, and Richard Foster and others, the appeal is made for the needs of the poor. We shouldn't accumulate here in the Western world because so many people are starving. That's true, and that's a good reason not to accumulate. But that's not the point of, of view that Scripture takes. If you love your money, Jesus says, it'll take you away from God. That's the point. That's the problem. But if you love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength, if you love the Lord Jesus and his appearing, if you set your affection on things above, if you treasure the spiritual realities, the real things in life, then everything else falls into place. And the sad thing is if we're like Demas and we love this present world, it will in the end lead us to desert the apostles. That is, we'll leave behind their word. We'll take it lightly. And the whole body will be full of darkness. That's Demas. Sad. Sad situation. We don't know what happened to Demas. Uh, some have suggested that he did in the end come back to the Lord and to the apostles. Because uh, Demas is a short form of, of the name Demetrius. And a Demetrius shows up in John's last little epistle of Third John. And he's commended there and said to be uh, someone who's worthy of respect by the, by the, the body of, of believers that John is writing to us. So it may well be that Demetrius came back. But at least in this, at this time, he was a real heartache to Paul. You can sense something of the pathos in, in these words. Demas, having loved this present world, left me in the lurch. Only Luke, he says, is with me. Faithful old Luke, who used his medical skill and his training and the skill in his hands to serve the apostle, not to aggrandize himself, not to enrich himself necessarily, but to serve. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. Uh, I'm so glad the apostle put that that word here, he, he, he probably could have overlooked Mark, but the Spirit of God led him to, to put this, uh, this word here about John Mark because it tells us that John Mark recovered from his failure. Do you, do you know who John Mark was? Interesting fellow. Uh, the early church, uh, some of the early fathers, gave him the nickname Stumblefingers. I don't know why. I, I suppose he's the sort of kid that you put uh, in right field when you choose up sides to play baseball. But that was his nickname, Stumblefingers. Uh, Mark had the, the happy privilege of knowing Jesus and the apostles. He grew up in Jerusalem. He was a little boy when Jesus uh, carried out his ministry in Jerusalem. His mother is named Mary. 
and she was apparently a wealthy woman. We don't know anything about his father. His father doesn't, doesn't appear in the gospel records. The house is called Mary's house, so we gather that his father must have died and left uh, an inheritance for Mary and, and for John Mark, and he grew up in that home. It apparently was a large home because uh, Mary was the host to the apostles and later to the early church. That was the house to which Peter went when he was let out of, let out of prison and the servant girl came to the door uh, to greet him. So John uh, knew the Lord and he knew the apostles and Peter evidently became his special friend. Uh, John Mark is the young man that ran naked through the night. You, you know the story? Uh, we're almost certain that, that it was John Mark because he tells the story in his gospel. None of the other gospel writers tell it. Uh, John evidently woke up in the middle of the night. He was just a, a little guy and heard, heard all this racket at the, in, the, uh, uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane and, and pulled a sheet around him. Didn't have anything else on. Put the sheet on. He went out through the darkness and, and hid in the bushes and listened in on on our Lord's conversation with the disciples and uh, uh, the, the betrayal of Judas and the, the soldiers coming and taking Jesus away. John saw all of that and apparently a Roman soldier saw him there and grabbed at him and, and, and grabbed his, the sheet that he was covered with and John Mark just ran right out of the sheet and ran all the way home naked as a jaybird and he tells the story in, in his gospel. Nice personal touch. Um, <clears throat> when, when Mark was in his, uh, probably his early 20s, the Apostle Paul, or perhaps a little older, the Apostle Paul came to Jerusalem uh, to bring money for famine relief. He was accompanied by Barnabas, who was uh, John Mark's uncle. And uh, Paul invited John Mark to accompany him as his personal assistant. The word that's used by Luke, by, uh, Luke in Acts to describe his activities indicate that he was, uh, that he was uh, more like a business manager than a servant. He bought their uh, tickets and he took care of their baggage to see that it got checked through and perhaps set up their itinerary and accompanied Paul and Barnabas on, on their first missionary journey into Turkey. And when they got into the interior of Turkey and John Mark began to see which way the wind was blowing and he realized that they were going to face a lot of opposition and the things were getting very tense and their lives were at stake, John Mark uh, went home to Mother. And that really miffed the apostle. He had a hard time getting over that. Later, when, when Paul wanted to uh, uh, make a second journey into that same part of the country and on into Europe. Barnabas suggested that they take John Mark along, and Mark said no, or Paul said, no, I'm not going to take that little quitter with me. I don't want him around. He, he deserted us when we were in Perga. And the disagreement became so intense that Paul and Barnabas split up. And uh, Paul took Silas, who was Timothy's replacement, and began his second missionary journey and. And Barnabas took his cousin Mark with him to Cyprus, and he made a man out of him. And here, 20 to 25 years later, Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, Oh, yes, bring, bring Mark. He's useful to me now. That's such a delightful touch. It, it indicates, again, that failures are never final. God is the God of the second chance and the third chance and the fourth chance. 
speaks to those of us that have uh, terrible failures in our inner past. Those failures do not disqualify us. If we've repented of them and judged them and put them away, God can make something out of us. He can make a man or a woman out of us, and we can continue to be useful in his service. No failure in the past serves to disqualify you. I don't care how terrible that failure was. John deserted the apostles, but but Mark took the time to re-equip, retool this man for life. And he made something out of him. Which also says to us that we need to be patient with people that have failed in the past. And we need to take the time to, uh, to uh, re-equip them for ministry. But now here's John Mark at the end of Paul's life. Considered useful to him. Now, uh, Tychicus, Paul says, I have sent to Ephesus. Tychicus was the bearer of this letter and apparently uh, replaced Timothy uh, in Ephesus. And uh, a personal note in verse 13, When you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus and the books, especially the parchments. Paul needed uh, his cloak. It was getting cold. It was nearing winter. And uh, he, the, the coats that they wore were poncho-like affairs, large circular leather uh, coats with a hole in the center, which they used not only for an overcoat, but also for a covering at night. And uh, Paul wanted his, his coat, and he wanted his books. He was sometimes bored down in that dark uh, dungeon, and he wanted his, uh, his uh, reading materials, the secular books, which he describes here as the books, and especially the parchments which would be the word. It's interesting to, to see this, uh, this elderly man at the end of his life, knowing that he only had a, a few weeks to live, still wanting the scriptures, wanting to spend time in worship and in fellowship uh, with the Lord. Now he refers to an enemy, Alexander the coppersmith. Did me much harm. The word translated did me much harm is a, is a specialized technical legal word uh, for bringing an accusation. Alexander is one whom Paul had to discipline in the church uh, there in Ephesus. Paul describes him in 1 Timothy 1.20 as, as one that he had to turn over to Satan, uh, that he might learn not to blaspheme. And apparently Alexander, out of spite, was the one who turned the apostle Paul uh, in. And then when Paul defended himself, he rebutted his testimony. That seems to be what Paul means when he writes in verse 15, Be on guard against him yourself. For he vigorously opposed our words, probably the words that he gave uh, in his testimony. At my first defense, in Paul's preliminary hearing, when he stood before Nero in the court, the Roman court, at my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. Paul has no spite, no resentment, no bitterness because his friends had, had turned away. It's all right, he says, may it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me. No human advocacy. No one to, to, uh, to witness on my behalf, to be a character witness. Nevertheless, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me in order that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the lion's mouth. Some have thought that Paul was, uh, uh, was about to be sentenced to the arena, the amphitheater, to do battle with wild beasts. But uh, he was somehow spared that fate. 
It's unlikely that Paul would have to go to the arena. He was a Roman citizen, and they simply did not treat their citizens in that, in that way. It's more likely that he's either using lion here, the term lion metaphorically, for Nero, which would be a very apt uh, symbol for that madman, or he's referring to Satan. In any case, he was delivered for a time. He did not uh, go to his death. And he says in verse 18, the Lord will deliver me from every evil deed. And we say, ah, Paul, you missed it on that one. Because shortly afterward, he was, he was beheaded. But uh, you see, Paul is not talking about evil deeds done to him. He was talking about evil deeds resident within himself. He knew his own weakness and, his, and the temptation to capitulate uh, to the court was very strong. But uh, the Lord strengthened him so that he didn't cave in. He didn't give in to the, uh, to the pressure. Uh, on the other hand, that strengthening occurred so that, as he puts it, the proclamation might be fully accomplished and all the Gentiles might hear. What a marvelous opportunity. Paul stood before the Supreme Court of his day and witnessed to Nero and to the rest of the court, perhaps, of his faith in, in Christ. Uh, that's a strategy that, that the Lord uh, contrived for, for Paul. He set that up. So that he had a chance to preach the gospel in the very center of the, of the Roman Empire. And Paul was faithful to the task. And, as he puts it, the Lord will bring me now safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Paul isn't afraid to die. He's looking forward to heaven and home. And he knows now that he has, as he puts it earlier, finished his course, fulfilled his ministry. The Lord will take him home. That's where he wants to be. He'll be, he'll be safe there. Now, um, some other greetings follow in, in verse 19. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. We've already run into Onesiphorus earlier in, in the book. He was this uh, fine uh, young man who, who uh, came to Paul's uh, aid when he was in prison in Rome and probably lost his life as a result. He was faithful to the apostle. And Prisca and Aquila are mentioned here, as they're mentioned so often in the New Testament. These are two of my favorite characters in the New Testament. Uh, they are always mentioned as a couple. Prisca, by the way, is the woman, and Aquila is the man. Uh, Aquila was a, was a Jew. We know that from, from Luke's history of the church. Uh, Prisca was probably a Gentile. She bears a Latin name, and uh, Prisca is an old uh, Roman family name. Many believe that she was a member of aristocracy. And uh, she was a, a, an exceedingly gifted woman. Six times their names occur in the New Testament. And in four of those instances, uh, Priscilla's name comes first. She was evidently the more gifted of the two, a gifted teacher, an expositor of, of, of Scripture. Uh, there's an interesting uh, story told of her in Acts uh, 18. Uh, would you like to turn back there with me while I read it? Acts 18. <clears throat> uh, verse 24. Luke is writing this uh, of this incident. Uh, now a certain Jew named Apollos 
an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty, mighty in the scriptures. Here is this gifted young rabbi that we hear so much of in the, in the book of Acts. Highly trained, highly educated man, skilled in, in teaching the Old Testament scriptures, and he came to Ephesus to teach. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things of Jesus. But he was only acquainted with the baptism of John. He didn't have the whole story. And he was confusing people when he taught. And uh, when he began to, to speak out boldly in the synagogue, we're told that Priscilla and Aquila heard him. Now, Luke always uses the uh, uh, a nickname for Prisca. Prisca was her formal name. He always refers to her, uh, Luke always refers to her, to her as Priscilla, which is the, the diminutive form of her name. It means little Prisca. So she may have been a, a, a very small woman, but she was large in stature. Because notice what, what Luke says. When he began to speak, that is, Apollos in the synagogue, Pris, Priscilla and Aquila heard him. They took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And apparently, since Aquila's name is first, and it's the habit of, of the writers of Scripture to put the more dominant and predominant, predominant person first, the more prominent person first, Aquila must have taken the lead in this instruction of this gifted young, young rabbi. It's interesting, if you have a King James, does anybody have a King James Version? You notice what they do? They turn it around. They make it Aquila and Priscilla with no textual warrant at all. No text puts Aquila's name first. Presca's name comes first. But back in the 18th century or 17th century when the, when the King James was written, the men who were responsible for translating that version were a bit offended by the fact that Aquila was the one who instructed this young woman. They took exception to that and without any textual evidence whatever, switched it around. And by the way, it still goes on today. I, I was looking up the, the entry, Priscilla, in the Zondervan Pictorial Dictionary. You know what they have under the entry, Priscilla? C, Aquila, and Priscilla. Uh, the scriptures will do that. Uh, the translators will do that. Scripture does not, but the translators very often will do that. In Romans 16.1, for example, we're told of this, uh, this uh, uh, woman who's, whose name is... Uh, Ah, her name slips me right now. What is it? Well, I'll look. Phoebe. I come into you, he says, our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, which is at Centuria. As, as Les Goodrich frequently says, all in all, we live in a very fair world. Uh, it, it may appear. And if you look in the margin... Where there's a side note for the word servant, it's translated deaconess, which uh, uh, Walt Kaiser calls that terribly insipid word, deaconess. There is no such thing as a deaconess. The New Testament never talks about deaconesses, never uses that form. It's always deacon, and the word means minister. Now, not necessarily in the sense that we use the word minister today as pastor. But when the New Testament is talking about ministers, it's talking about household servants, servants within the house of God. Paul and Barnabas are described in the, in the chapters that follow as ministers. Same word that's used in Romans here. So uh, Phoebe was a, was a minister 
within the church of God, as was Aquila. We really need to be careful that we do not in any way demean or belittle the ministry of women within our body. We will suffer because of it. I, I have a good friend, Steve Zeisler, who's doing some writing these days. And I want to read something he wrote about Galatians 3.28 that, that very much impressed me. Galatians 3.28 says there is neither male nor female. There is neither Greek nor Jew. There is neither slave nor free. But all are one in Christ Jesus. And this is his comment on that, on that verse. As far as the Lordship of Christ is concerned, there's no distinction between men and women. Our Lord intends women to be grown-up disciples, not junior partners of men. He expects serious Christianity just as much from women as he does from men. He expects fine courage just as much from women as he does from men. Where it is true that men in the church, in our culture, or indeed anywhere in our sphere, have treated women with disdain or belittled them in their discipleship with Christ, then what Paul is saying here is a challenge. Jesus expected women to be grown-up Christians. They were in no sense any less robed in him than men. If any among us think that Christian women, merely because they are women, can be expected to reason in a shallow way, fold under pressure, gossip and be unreliable with sensitive issues, act frivolously with money or time, then we are not hearing what is being said here. Men and women, slaves and free, Jews and Greeks, anyone who is a follower of Jesus is meant to be grown up and mature and ought to be expected to be such by their fellow brothers and sisters. Now here you have a beautiful example of a grown-up Christian woman in Prisca, Paul's friend and associate, who was far more gifted, apparently, than, than her husband. Her husband was a, a, tra a tradesman, a craftsman, rather. He worked with his hands. He was a tent maker. That's how he supported the family. So you have an illustration of one of these situations where the woman is much more gifted in her ability to teach and expound the word. The man's not threatened by that, apparently. Gives her the freedom and the opportunity to use her gifts. That's Prisca. I wish we had more time to talk about her. Now let's go back to 2 Timothy and finish up our chapter. Beat, greet Priscilla or Prisca. Paul always uses her formal uh, name. He is apparently a little more dignified than uh, Luke. Greet Prisca and Aquila in the household of, of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth. Erastus was a city councilman of the city of Corinth. If you, if you visit the museum in Corinth, they'll show you a little plaque, uh, a marble plaque, and inscribed on it are the words, This pavement was paid for by Erastus, who was in charge of city works. And uh, he evidently had given some money to the city of Corinth in order to build that uh, build that uh, uh, court area. We should probably invite someone like that to come to Boise and uh, work on downtown redevelopment. <laughs> Trophimus, I left sick at Miletus. Here's an instance of someone that, that Paul could not heal, an indication that it is not necessarily God's will to heal us uh, physically. He could not heal Trophimus. He was left behind sick. Sometimes God wants to glorify himself through our sickness and through our weakness. We need to be content with that. Now, he says, make every effort to come before winter. Eubulus greets you also, Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brethren. 
Uh, we don't have time to talk about these three, but uh, uh, there's some interesting history that surrounds the names of Pudens and Linus and Claudia. This is a family. Apparently, Claudia was the woman, Pudens was the husband, and Linus was the son. Now, that's not the Linus who carried his blanket, carries his blanket around. This is a man who eventually uh, succeeded Peter as the leader of the church in Rome. One of the early church historians, Eusebius, Eusebius tells us about Linus. He became a very prominent man in the church, uh, Peter's successor at, at Rome, the first bishop of the church there. And he was the son of these two, Claudia and Pudens. Pudens' name in Latin means bashful, but uh, he wasn't one of the seven dwarfs. Uh, he was a patrician. As, as best we're able to tell, he was a member of the royal family. And, and Claudia was a, a, a princess from Britain. Uh, her husband, or her father, was the king of Britain, evidently. And in one of those interesting sidelights from history, there's a, a, a Roman poet love, who wrote love poetry. His name was Marshall, who in two of his love poems celebrates the love of Claudia and Putin's. And uh, they were apparently prominent enough to be known in the secular world, and they were memorialized in this, in this literature. But they had come to Christ, and they had this, uh, this son, Linus, who went on to become a, an effective and powerful, prominent leader in the church in, in Rome. Now, these are all Paul's friends, and as Emerson puts it, every man is my superior in some way in that. That is, in that uh, area of excellence, we can learn from them. And certainly it, it's true that we can learn from the, the, uh, some of these characters, some of the, the people that Paul knew. Now this final uh, parting word, uh, the Lord be with your spirit, grace be with you. And uh, it should be noted that the you uh, in that last line, grace be with you, is plural. Paul realized that this book would not be read merely by Timothy, but it would be read by the church in Ephesus, just as it has been read by the church for 1,900 years. Grace be with you, Paul says. That's his uh, final note, his parting note. Now, uh, there, there are three things I think that we've learned from this, um, from this book. Three things to do in the face of the tough times that, that we live in. Paul says, these are the last days. We're in them. The period between the first and second comings of Christ are described in the New Testament as the last days. And Paul says, the last, last days will be hard times, stressful times. These are tough times. It'll be difficult to be Christian, to be thoroughly, authentically Christian in these times. What should we do? How should we live? Well, the, the same three emphases keep coming back over and over again. The first thing he says is just make friends with people. That's simple. Anybody can do that. Just be a friend. The world's full of your friends. A friend is not someone that you befriend. Or, excuse me. A friend is not someone who befriends you. A friend is someone that you befriend. So befriend people. Show love to people in this cold, sterile world. And then uh, incarnate the truth. Be a, a, a living reminder of the life of Christ and a, a visible representation of the invisible Christ. It's not that we have to be perfect, but people need to see the character of Christ reflected in us. And then thirdly, Paul says, impart the truth. Not only incarnate it, but impart it. Proclaim it. Preach it like a herald, as Terry 
pointed out uh, to us last last week. Uh, preach it whether you feel like it or not, in season and out. Impart the truth to others. And that's how lives are changed, and that's how the world will be changed, to the extent that it can be changed in, in these last days. And as I look through this list of people who are mere names to us, I see an example of how that works. Paul made friends of these people. They traveled with them. They spent a lot of time doing things together. He made good friends out of them. He incarnated the truth, and he imparted it to them. And they went everywhere through the world, Yugoslavia and over to Gaul to Central Europe. Western Christianity comes from Central Europe, and perhaps if Crescens is not a deserter but rather a missionary sent by Paul to Central Europe, we can thank him because he evangelized the Salts and the Gauls and and the people that lived in that region, and, and, and we are the recipients of that gospel. And he sent uh, Mark uh, uh, off to help with Peter. Mark, Mark became Peter's servant, and out of that relationship wrote the gospel of, of Mark, and then later went to North Africa, to Alexandria, and planted the church there. And, and others he sent to Yugoslavia, and on back to Greece, and over to to Turkey, to, to Asia Minor, and the gospel began to spread all over the world. How did he do that? Well, he just made friends out of people. And he incarnated the truth. And he imparted it to others. You can do that. I can do that. That's simple. But sometimes the simplest things are the most profound. So let's, uh, let's take this book seriously. Uh, there's no end to the good that we can accomplish in this world if we do so. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for this, uh, these final words of the Apostle, this last will that he's passed on to us, as well as to Timothy. These are words that, uh, that make us courageous, that give us hope, that help us to see that we can do something to affect change in our world. That's, uh, that's the desire of our heart, Lord, as you send us out to be with our friends. We thank you for your grace that is with us, that enables us to live out the truth that, that we proclaim, and that we do have a word that we can study and, and understand and proclaim to others. We ask that you'd use us, Lord, to accomplish uh, the... The, the goals that we would like to see accomplished. And thank you, Lord, for your presence within us, alongside, available to help us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.